Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, team, for leading us this morning. Congratulations on the rest of you for uh, getting past the gauntlet out there, actually making your way into the gathering. Um, and as Laura mentioned, I do encourage you to head back there afterwards while supplies last uh, to continue to support this family that we're seeking to reach out to and help. So good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Nelson, and it's a gift to be with you all again in this space and at this time. We're going to dive uh, right into scripture this morning. So if you've got a chair Bible nearby, I encourage you to grab it and uh, turn to Matthew 28. We are in our third and final week of a short practice series on worship. Um, next week, which the church calendar tells us is Pentecost Sunday, Scott is going to lead us back into the Apostles' Creed and more specifically on the final section of the Apostles' Creed, which begins, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. So, Pentecost, Holy Spirit. See what we did there? Almost as though it was planned that way. So, Pentecost being next week means we are in the season of Eastertide for one more week. So, that's partly why I wanted to open with a resurrection story. So, let's look at it together. Matthew 28, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 9. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Suddenly Jesus met them. What would that have been like? To have a sudden encounter with a loved one you never thought you would see again. Does that happen to anyone here? Perhaps someone, not someone you thought was dead, but in all other ways gone? And all of a sudden, there they are. These women show up at a graveyard, at a tomb, depleted and grieving for an appointment with nothing but lifelessness. And the scene was not what they expected. Foundations of the earth literally shook. They're greeted by an angelic being. The angel tells them that the one they're looking for is not here, that he's in fact been raised up from death, and that they will see him again, and that they should hurry and share this news. So they turn to go, and they come face to face with the risen Christ. Suddenly, Jesus met them an encounter with resurrection life. As we've been exploring worship together over the past two weeks, we've been led to stories of people encountering Jesus, mainly women, interestingly enough. First, Scott opened up John chapter 4, where a Samaritan woman was met by Jesus at Jacob's well. Then last week, Lance brought us to Luke chapter 7, where a woman anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and then John 8, where a woman caught in sexual sin was brought to Jesus and was met with radical inclusion and compassion. 
And here in Matthew's gospel, we find another story where Jesus met some women and worship took place. So worship is a huge topic. There, there's so much we could teach on. There's tons of places you can go in scripture. And when we planned this series, we didn't really have a clear sense of what to focus on. There was no specific theme or text or even a title other than the super grabby worship. Uh, we just simply felt led that we wanted to spend some time on worship. First, because we didn't want our exploration of the Apostles' Creed to be limited to a cerebral type of knowing or merely a discussion about God. We wanted to make sure, as Scott mentioned, that theology led to doxology, a chance for us as a church to exhale and to engage intentionally to meet with God. So as I've zoomed out, zoomed out in preparation for today and tried to survey where we've been, I want to suggest perhaps that a theme has emerged, and that is simply as worship as encounter. Worship as encounter. It's not the only theme, and I want to be clear that by naming a theme, I don't want it to feel confining. But maybe this is the closest thing to a through line that we uh, will arrive at in this series. And to me, that feels hopeful and spacious, and I hope it does to you as well. Worship as encounter. And the idea that to worship is not just to muse on or talk about or endlessly discuss God, but to actually come into contact with the presence and the splendor and the character of the living God. So is this theme just a cool idea or what I think is a cool idea, or is it actually borne out in scripture? That's one question we could ask. Well, I suggest it's a pretty significant through line in the big story as well. If you turn with me to Leviticus, page number is up here, but you probably all read Leviticus all the time, so you probably don't need it. But nonetheless, uh, Leviticus 26, verse 12, reads this way. I, that is God, will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. So, so these are some words spoken to the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai, and in them, God defines the relationship he desires with those who are to worship him through time and space. I will walk among you. I will be yours. You will be mine. This is the language of relational intimacy. And then if you trace through the pages of scripture, these same words or words that carry this same intent appear scattered throughout from prophets to psalmists to apostles. And then at the end of God's written word, they appear again and turn to Revelation, way to the back. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, read like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. That's where it's all going. God with us, us with God, relationship, communion, intimacy. 
So in many ways, I suggest that encounter is the through line of scripture. Page after page, that the story reveals that it's not enough to talk or think or dream about Jesus. We need to be met by him. So worship then is a primary way where we foster that kind of culture. Worship is where we take the risk of cultivating intimacy with the divine. And I say risk because in the worship of God, as in any relationship where true communion or even connection can take place, we need to come as we are, not as we think we should be. We need to come as we are, not as we think we should be. Let's come back to Matthew 28 for just a moment. I want us to notice something there. Just verses 8 and 9. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. So as the women are hurrying away from their earth-shattering experience at the tomb, they were, as would be expected, afraid, yet filled with joy. They felt two strong emotions simultaneously. And then suddenly Jesus met them and they worshipped as they were. That's not always easy. How do we learn to worship, to encounter God as we are and not as we think we should be? How do we worship through fear, through confusion, through our questions, through our disappointments and our heartaches? One way is by practicing lament. By practicing lament, that's where we're going to go next. But first, let's pray and ask Jesus to meet us. So to begin our prayer, I want to invite us to pray the words of St. Augustine. Uh, if you want to read along with me, you can, and then I'm going to just continue in prayer, but you're welcome to just listen as well. You never go away from us, yet we have difficulty returning to you. Come, Lord, stir us up and call us back. Kindle and seize us, be our fire and our sweetness. Let us love, let us run. Spirit of Christ, as Augustine prayed, we, we echo this and say that the deepest part of who we are, are wants to encounter you. But we confess that the thought of actually meeting you fills us with a spectrum of emotions. And so we'll pause for a moment to name in silence the ones that are true for us as individuals. Let's take just a moment. So in coming as we are, with everything we've named, we ask you to increase our hunger for you. We ask you to place in us the desire that says, when can I go and meet with God? To have the ability to affirm that it is a good thing to give thanks to the Lord. Increase our confidence that no matter what state we're coming to you, we can be assured of your open-hearted welcome of us. You always stand ready to prepare a table for us to eat, to share bread and wine and intimacy with us, even in the presence of our enemies like lust and greed and pride and selfishness. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Be with us now. Open our minds, our hearts, our entire beings as we open the scriptures together. In the name of the resurrected one, amen. So um, I'm aware that some of you might be thinking that my somewhat lengthy intro 
um, turned into a bit of a bait and switch there at the end. All this talk about encounter and meeting God, and then bam, we're going to talk about lament. I don't know if that, if that landed on anyone that way, as if I were looking for the sourest possible note to end this series on. Um, well, partly right, we are concluding with a lament psalm, um, but I, I really do pray and hope that it will feel hopeful and not sour. But we're concluding with a lament psalm in large, part, in, in large part because look around, there is much, much in our world that is lamentable. And we're going to look at a lament psalm because I think most of us need to be schooled in lament, or at least we need a remedial upgrade kind of course. One reason we need lament is that other ways of dealing with afflictive emotions are not enough. Um, I'll share a story. I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but I've, I've been involved with music in the church for a good number of years and prepared to lead worship in a lot of different places. But I don't know if you've been in sort of like a pre-service worship gathering, kind of like we do out here, and someone prays something like this, God, please help us to just... That's always a supremely important word in prayer. Help us to just set aside distractions so we can focus on you. Help us leave whatever it is that's weighing us down at the door so we can be free to come into your throne room. Does that sound familiar? Has anyone sort of heard that? We prayed it ourselves. I don't, for a time, that kind of thinking and praying made sense to me. I mean, it sounded great, right? It sounded like what I should want to be totally free from distractions so that I could fix my undivided attention on God, who doesn't want that. But somewhere along the line, I started to wonder, when, when worship is over, what then do I do with all of the stuff that I laid down at the door? Do I pick it up again and take it with me? It was then that I realized this is a prayer I could no longer agree with. Because when you open up the Psalms, the ones that contain portions of lament in particular, you see a world where people are definitely not leaving their stuff at the door. They are bringing it firmly, squarely, and boldly to God, which is the only place our stuff can be met and touched by mercy and redeemed by grace and infused with wholeness. Can we agree to be a community that doesn't leave its stuff at the door? Can we agree together that we'll be the kind of people who bring it to God in worship to let God see us and to know us in whatever we're carrying to offer it as prayer? I pray we will be that kind of community because that's how the ancient prayer book of Scripture conditions us, teaches us to be before God. And by prayer book, of course, I mean the Psalms. So here we are at Lament Psalm. Psalm 13. Again, page number is up there if you want to read along. And let's just read this short psalm together. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my, enemy will, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is God's word. Now, 
when entering the world of the Psalms, one really important thing to remember is that we're dealing with a different genre than most of the rest of the Bible. What I mean by that is contained in this simple phrase, that throughout most of Scripture, God speaks to us. And in the Psalms, we respond to God. Throughout most of Scripture, God speaks to us, but in the Psalms, we respond to God. So, in other words, the Psalms are prayers. They are poetic songs and hymns that the people of God have prayed for thousands of years. And because they're prayers, they exist not to just give us fodder for discussions about God, to engage in theology. They are there mainly to train us in responding to God. They exist to condition our praying, to guide us in answering the God who has spoken to us. Uncle Eugene was bold enough to say this, that we don't learn the Psalms until we're praying them. We don't learn the Psalms until we're praying them. So the question we want to ask is, how is this psalm teaching us to pray? And more broadly, how do the lament psalms condition our worship? There's a sense in which we could say Psalm 13 is kind of like the quintessential lament. Or at the very least, it's one where we most clearly see the typical structure of a psalm of lament. Notice how it's neatly divided into three parts with two verses each. So we're going to look at each part, walk through them one at a time. The first we could call questioning God, verses one and two. Now, if you grew up in the church, you might have inherited this notion that this section is simply inappropriate, like that the one thing you don't do if you're a good Christian is question God. I don't know where that idea comes from, but it's not from Scripture. To interpret questioning in prayer as a sign of doubt or mistrust is to misunderstand the psalmist's intent in asking questions of God. It's precisely because the psalmist believes God is good that he feels bold enough to voice his, his questions, pardon me, with complete honesty. And so David asks how long? Four times. In the opening two verses of the psalm, David has a bone to pick with God. In a matter of a few short lines, we learn a whole bunch about how he feels. First phrase, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? When I was eight and my brother Chris was five, we lived in Fresno, California, where there is a pirate-themed family amusement park called Blackbeards that exists to this day. Um, and so, pretty sweet graphics. Uh, Blackbeards has an arcade. It's got mini golf, batting cages, bumper boats, laser tag, ropes course. It's kind of like Castle Fun Park in Abbotsford, but like times 10. Um, so one time we spent an afternoon there and uh, with a whole bunch of extended family. I don't know how many cars we came in, but a lot. And at the end of the day, we piled into the cars and my mom thought Chris, who's five, was with dad and dad thought he was with mom and we all left. Chris was with neither. And so my dad somehow realized it about 10 minutes into the drive home. This is long before cell phones, remember? I'm pretty old. And so he turned around and he absolutely tore back through town to get back. I don't know if he had driven faster before or since. Fortunately, some of the staff of Blackbeards had found my little brother, gave him a bunch of game tokens, and he was kind of like a kid in a candy store. So things ended well, relatively quickly for my brother. But that feeling of being forgotten can be the deepest kind of pain. If you grew up with loving parents who were present you're used to living in a state of being remembered. That's why feeling forgotten hurts so much. And so here the psalmist is saying, how long? Uh, forever? Is there an end to this? How long will you hide your face from me? 
Here there's a strong sense of shame and forsakenness, as though God can't bring himself to look in David's direction. One commentator suggests that the meaning of God forgetting and hiding his face, which is translated elsewhere as looking the other way, is the feeling that God is actually denying David practical help. So the reason being that in the Old Testament, remembering and seeing are taken as preludes to action. If someone remembers, or if God in particular remembers and sees, there's something, hap- there's something about to go down. They were hints that God was about to do something. Here's an example from Exodus 2. Um, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them, remembering, seeing, looking. That comes first, then action. And of course, what came next were the powerful interventions of God on behalf of his people leading up to the exodus itself, liberation from slavery. So as David questions God here, we can't know what his situation was exactly. We can imagine a bunch of them, if you know his story. Which occasion exactly was it that prompted Psalm 13? We're not sure. But we know that he wasn't experiencing God's help as he had in the past. Psalm 13 gives us permission to pray our forsakenness as well. Last two questions in this opening section. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So David's feeling abandoned, anguished, and basically bound to sorrow. There's this visceral sense of being resigned to defeat. Remember David's story in First and Second Samuel, and you recall he had many enemies, many enemies. And they weren't just enemies in a removed, abstract sense. These were flesh and blood people who fought wars against him, and won often. And David felt like a perpetual loser. Anyone know what it's like to be on a sports team that loses all the time? It's not fun. You want to know when this losing streak is going to end. This feeling of helplessness, of losing over and over again is at the heart of the opening verses of Psalm 13. So we have these four questions right off the top of the psalm. They're abrupt, they're honest, and there's no time for exchanging pleasantries. And maybe the most shocking aspect of these questions is that they're rhetorical. The speaker isn't seeking answers so much as he's wanting to fix the blame firmly on God. He's holding God responsible for his trouble. Uh, Bono made some comments about lament psalms. I kind of like his take on it. He was talking about U2's song 40, which is based on Psalm 40 and a couple of others, including 13. And he said this, how long to sing this song? I'd thought of it as a nagging question, pulling at the hem of an invisible deity whose presence we glimpse only when we act in love. How long hunger? How long hatred? How long until creation grows up and the chaos of its precocious hell-bent adolescence has been discarded? I thought it odd that the vocalizing of such questions could bring such comfort to me too. Something begins to happen in us as we bring our deepest questions before God. And this is true whether the questioning emerges from something that affects us personally or whether it stems from something much broader than that. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this man. 
I just met him kind of this week, not actually in person, but through the internet. Uh, his name is Emmanuel Katongoli. He was born in Uganda to parents who were originally from Rwanda. Katongoli is a priest, he's a theologian, he's an author who's written numerous books, and he's best known for his work on violence and politics in Africa and his work on a theology of reconciliation. is one of his books that's called Mirror to the Church, and it has a subtitle, Resurrecting Faith After Genocide in Rwanda. In it, he writes this. We learn who we are as we walk together in the way of Jesus. So I want to invite you on a pilgrimage. Rwanda is often held up as a model of evangelization in Africa. Yet in 1994, beginning on the Thursday of Easter week, Christians killed other Christians, often in the same churches where they had worshiped together. The most Christianized country in Africa became the site of its worst genocide. With a mother who was a Hutu and a father who was Tutsi, author Emmanuel Kantongali is uniquely qualified to point out that the tragedy in Rwanda is also a mirror reflecting the deep brokenness of the church in the West. Rwanda brings us to a cry of lament on our knees where together we learn that we must interrupt these patterns of brokenness. The book contains a number of examples of Katongali's cry of lament, and here's a short sample. How long, O oh God, will we go on with a mock Christianity that takes the tribalism of our world for granted? How long, O oh God, will we be satisfied with the way things are? How long, O oh God, will we try to make some difference in the world while leaving the basic patterns of the world unaffected? How long, O oh God, will we take consolation in numbers, buildings, and structures when millions of your children are dying? How long, O oh sovereign Lord, will we remain blind to the lessons of history? Here's a little thought experiment. Imagine mm, being a worship leader in a church within a nation that is embroiled in the turbulence of war and the unspeakable genocide or horror of genocide. What songs do you pick then? What words do you put in front of people? Trading my sorrows? I don't think so. Do you lead in a prayer that says, God, help us leave whatever we're carrying at the door so we can focus on you without distraction? No, not likely. I had an experience once that bears the tiniest fraction of similarity to this scenario. I was the worship leader on a Sunday where a church was closing. So we were worshiping together for the last time as a community, and it was my job to choose music. Imagine my surprise when I turned to the back of the hymn book where there's indices and there wasn't a section called Songs for Closing a Church. If you haven't experienced the need for lament personally, if you haven't suffered in any significant way, you have reason to be thankful. But your life isn't only about you. We need to come to worship as we are not as we think we, can, we should be, and we can be assured that Jesus will meet us in that place. But here's the thing. You and I can't know the full truth of who we are unless we look outside ourselves. We can't know. As we find the courage to do that, one of the discoveries we make is our need for lament. We start to realize that our stories intersect and inform each other. We rejoice with those who rejoice, yes, but we also weep 
with those who weep. And it's in the grieving that we find healing. It's in the lamenting that hope begins to rise mysteriously, consistently. Emmanuel Katongoli goes on to say this, but Rwanda also brings us to a place of hope. Indeed, the only hope for our world after Rwanda's genocide is a new kind of Christian identity for the global body of Christ, a people on pilgrimage together, a mixed group bearing witness to a new identity made possible by the gospel. How is this psalm teaching us to pray? Once we've learned to bring our honest questions to God, we're then invited to actually ask something of God. Verses 3 and 4. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. In these verses, David's demanding attention. He wants God to change his perspective concerning David. In contrast to verse 1, in which there's a sense of God hiding his face, or the message renders it, I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Here there's a cry for God to, in effect, turn around and take a good look at me. Have you ever had something serious to discuss with a close friend and they refuse to look you in the eye? That's a frustrating experience. They're cold, they're standoffish, content to stay in their own world and not get involved in your issues. Now, have you and I ever felt this way toward God but haven't had the guts to tell God how we really felt? I hope it feels like good news that Psalm 13 gives us permission to pray our frustration, to not only ask for attention but action, to bring our desperate need for God's intervention. Now, we're not told, again, exactly what's going on, and it's up to us to imagine what kind of situation might stir up this kind of pleading. And that's what makes this prayer so universal, so adaptable to whatever might be going on in our own lives. Whatever our situation, the Psalms of Lament give us permission, even encouragement, to bring our questions and our petitions to God with abandon, with rawness, with authentic emotion, with the things we're feeling in our bones. But here's the key. You're bringing these things to God. You're questioning, you're asking, you're petitioning in worship. You're bringing your questions, your wrestlings, your confusion, and your afflictive emotions to God. Not Twitter, not a text, not triangulation that enables you to avoid difficult conversations and potential conflict. Now, we're masters at this. Well, let me speak for myself. I am a master at this. Avoiding conflict is one of my spiritual gifts. But by grace, I am slowly learning to lean into a healthier way. And part of that means practicing bringing my whole self to God in prayer and worship. Friends, can we keep practicing this together? Love this quote. There's a tendency for us to flee from the wild silence and the wild dark, to pack up our gods and hunker down behind city walls to turn the gods into idols, to kowtow before them and approach their precincts only in official robes of office. And when we are in the temples, then who will hear the voice crying in the wilderness? Who will hear the reed shaken by the wind? Bringing it to God means you open up a conversation that you're willing to stay in. 
one that may not always feel like there are two partners in the dialogue, but scriptural witness, our shared history, the glory of creation, always serves to convince us otherwise. So bring your questions, bring your petitions, bring your WTF to God. By all means, ask away, but then don't ghost. Your confused, frustrated, angry, pain-filled question is not a mic drop moment. It's not a time to walk off the stage of your life. It's not a last word. It's an opening to the source of all life. And more than that, it's an opening to the one who lived and died and rose again in solidarity with everything you have experienced. Everything you've experienced. Lament teaches us to stay with the wild silence, to make friends with the dark. In many ways, this is the heart of the journey of faith. <laughs> We've got our entire lives to practice this. Flannery O'Connor <laughs> said, when we get our spiritual house in order, we'll be dead. This goes on. You arrive at enough certainty to be able to make your way, but it's making it in darkness. Don't expect faith to clear things up for you. It is trust, not certainty. Trust, which brings us to the last section of Psalm 13. Let's consider it briefly. But I trust in your unfailing love, and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. We don't know what happened between verses 4 and 5. It's a little abrupt. We don't know how long it took. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know whether David's circumstances actually changed or whether even in the process of changing or whether he just experienced a shift in perspective. He began to see things from a different point of view as a result of conversing honestly and openly with God, maybe even from God's outlook. But one thing that seems apparent in these last couple of verses is that somewhere along the line, in the midst of his ranting, he realizes that he also has a responsibility. He has a decision to make in the face of his circumstances, and he chooses to trust God. David looks to better things in the future in light of the past. That's the significance of unfailing love. Your, unf your love hasn't failed me. I can bank on this. And he rejoices as though his deliverance has already happened. And he's so confident that God will, in fact, turn his face toward him and act on his behalf, that the last phrase in most translation appears in the past tense. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. There's security. There's peace. There is assurance and confidence in this God who hears the cry of his people and answers. And so he sings a new song. We need to come to worship as we are, not as we think we should be. But when we've worshipped, we ought not to leave the same. Because in worship is the place we open ourselves to being changed in order to create, to affect change, to live into the new humanity that Jesus inaugurated and that people like Emmanuel Katongali keep calling us back to. This doesn't mean your circumstances or situation is guaranteed to change, but there's a good possibility, there ought to be, so long as we're bringing our true, intentional, open selves to worship, and that we're being led in a way so as to create space for this kind of encounter, there's a good chance your perspective on your circumstances will shift. In time, 
in due course with practice. How might your perspective shift? Well, you may have a renewed sense that you're not alone in them, in whatever you're experiencing, whereas previously you might have assumed you were. You may be reminded of God's faithfulness, whereas you may have forgotten about past experiences where God has been active and present in your life. This could happen through story, through sermon, through scripture, through the songs we sing, through casual conversation. But again, this takes practice. We are not skilled in lament. I pray we might get a little better at it, not only for our own sake, but for what it can offer to others. Nicholas Wolterstorff is, is, if you've been in the um, theology world at all, you know that name, and you might know a bit of his story. He lost his son at age 25 in a mountain climbing accident, and uh, he took time to write about that journey of grief in a book called Lament for a Son. And uh, here's what he resolved to do. I shall look at the world through tears, and perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. What does it mean to worship as we are, not as we think we should be? I want to offer some kind of scattered summary thoughts. I've never really ended a sermon like this before, but we'll see what happens. And then I want to invite us to the table. So some statements here. Let's just sit with them prayerfully, perhaps openly. Maybe something will make a connection. To worship God is to risk an intimate encounter with love. To worship is to confess that God is God and we are not. To worship is to lean not on our own understanding, but to acknowledge that the architect of our faith, or to acknowledge the architect of our faith in all our coming and going. Thanks to Chelsea McKenzie for the image of architect. I picked that up from her this last week. To worship God is to remember who God is and in that light to be reminded who we are. To worship God through lament is to join the human company of mourners whether or not I personally feel the need to mourn. To worship is to offer our bodies, our entire humanity, the whole truth of who we are to be reshaped into a more Christ-like image. To worship is to open to God regularly, often, continually, to allow the river of God's life to flow through us to others. The result of worship is our lives infused with divine life, a community that gradually and steadily grows to look more like the fruit basket of the Spirit, one that blesses other communities and individuals whether they believe or do not believe. Let's pray. God, thank you for our story of faith 
that tells us that you are not in the place of death, but that you have risen, that you are alive, that you are seated in the heavenly realms, that you have sent us the Spirit to infuse our life, our life with yours, and that your kingdom is coming and yet not fully here. So in that place of in-betweenness, we acknowledge the pain, the suffering, the questions, the confusion, all that is afflictive and uncertain, and we offer it to you in the place of worship and prayer. Give us the faith to believe that you will indeed meet us in that place with surprising songs of newness, with fresh perspective, with eyes that see as you see. May we learn to lament well together with you and in your power. Thank you for the table to which we now come, which is a, cons- a constant symbol and reminder of your welcome of us to come as we are, to not leave anything at the door, but to bring it all in, to allow you to touch us, to see us, to meet us as we are, but not to send us away the same. So may your life touch us as we consume bread and wine together as a community. Would you again continue to do your creative, transformative work in us? For your sake, for your glory.